Good evening. Tonight, we are going to start a Sunday evening sermon series. And not sure how long it's going to last. I have plans, but we'll see how they go. Uh, it's going to be, the sermon series overall is going to be entitled, Going Back to the Well. Going Back to the Well. And it is based on some lesson designations that I came across in a workbook by a fellow preaching peer named Kent Heaton out of Florida. And his little workbook that he's got is entitled Bible Stories at the Well. It is a 2020 workbook in which he takes a look at a number of biblical encounters that occurred around wells. And I thought that was really a cool idea. There's a lot of, a lot of lessons that we can learn from the stories and there's a, a multitude of them that happened around or centered around wells. And so I would like to in this little sermon series kind of take a look at some of those lessons and some of those applications and see what we can learn and make from them. My intention is to take pretty much just his titles. And I have some comments of his tonight in the introduction that I'd like to read to you, but pretty much I'd like to just take his chapter titles and turn them into a series of Sunday night sermons designed to do the same thing, and that is to give us maybe some fresh insights, maybe some fresh um, depth and perspective at some of these accounts that will help us to be stronger and better Christians in our daily lives. As Brother Heaton wrote in his final lesson of the book, which is called The Well of Application, he said, application is the most vital part of any lesson. Studying the traits of godliness will have little impact if the application is not made to personal choice. In other words, a well is only as good as the effort put forth to dig the well. Thinking about the well, planning the well, and talking with others about the well is not going to bring water to the surface, and I thought that was an excellent point. Digging a well took a lot of hard work before the joy of the cooling water was found. Some wells were deeper than others, requiring more work. But life depended on the water from the wells, so every effort was made to finish the wells, and I, I believe the application for us is, is that there's a lot of life-giving water, if you will, from the wells of life, from the water of life, that we can learn from some of these stories. He goes on to say the Bible is an endless supply of the living water that requires digging and finding the refreshing water of life that will give us all hope and joy and peace and comfort to the souls. That is what I hope to accomplish with this sermon series. As he concludes in that last lesson of his book on application, he said, digging wells of God will help the Christian to find his way in a perverse and sinful generation. The world is a barren desert that can only find joy in the oasis of the garden of God's grace, where the well of salvation was planted at a place called Golgotha. Jesus Christ died for the sins of all men to bring them to the Father, 
and to the place of everlasting water. The river of life is offered to all of those who will drink. This water is without end eternal and brings life to a lost and dying world. When the Lord created the world, he placed man in a garden called Eden with a river that went out to water the garden. Because of sin, man lost access or man lost the garden and lived under a curse with thorns and thistles. But John revealed to us in Revelation that the garden lost in Genesis is regained in the eternal garden of God's presence. As we read in Revelation 22, 1 through 5, it was a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, that proceeds from the throne of God and from the Lamb. He concludes with this, how fitting it is that heaven in all of its grandeur and glory is a place of pure water with the tree of life on either side of the river. Man needs water to sustain life and the water given by Jesus Christ is where he will find eternal life. It is my intention to run this series probably about through to the end of the year, but we will see how it goes. As I read some of these titles and looked over his lessons, I was a bit intrigued about some of the places they could be taken. So tonight, I'd like to begin with a very familiar text, probably when you heard that we were going to be talking about wells. It is the first one that came to mind, so please open your Bibles to John 4. It is the one that is most likely the most familiar of all of them to us. The account of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well, and I know this is something we've covered a lot of different times, maybe, or in your Christian life, you've, you've read this and studied it before, but I love the way he's coming at this. The title of tonight's lesson is The Well of Truth. Again, there are a bunch of different wells. He calls them, designates them different things. In John 4, he designates the well of truth. I'm going to tie it to some of our evangelistic efforts as well as other things. The well of truth. The account begins, as we know, in John 4, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Sychar is one of the oldest cities in Palestine, with a rich history of stories in the Old Testament. Sychar was formerly called Shechem, and it is where Joshua assembled the people in order to reaffirm their covenant with God as well as where the bones of Joseph were taken or uh, were buried when those were brought up out of Egypt. We learned both of those things in Joshua chapter 24. So it has a, it has a rich history, this, this area, and we see that pointed to in verse 5. In verse 6, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It's noontime. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. As you probably heard, most commentators believe that the reason that she came at noontime was because of her sordid past. Women in these regions did not come to the well to gather water in the middle of the day because of the heat. 
You notice she came there by herself. You'll notice there wasn't a bunch of other ladies from town out there at the well at the same time that she was. Typically, that work was done early in the morning when it was a whole lot cooler than in those very arid desert regions to come to the well at noontime carrying these big water jugs. Consider this, how, how labor intensive that was to carry these big clay water pots. They didn't have plastic gallon jugs then or two liters or any of those sorts of things to carry those out there in this climate at noontime rather than with all of the other ladies in the morning. And again, it has been suggested because of her life and being known in this small town for the kind of woman that she was, and it was not pretty, that probably she came out there by herself. I, I really thought Brother uh, Heaton's comments were insightful when he said, the master teacher always sought opportunities to teach and he asked the woman for a drink. The answer Jesus gives creates a bridge to open the door of greater things for this woman. And, and I really want you to consider what he said. Jesus is there. Woman comes at noontime. Jesus asks for a drink. If you remember, I like what he said about, about Jesus always wanting to teach and looking for opportunities and to create them. And I want you to think back to our door knocking. And one of the things that we learned later in our uh, getting ready to go out and door knock was the whole thing about engage somebody. When you go into their yard, look for flag, look for kids' toys, the way they keep their house, their flower beds. Find something in their life that's important to them that you can, that you can talk about with them. And I want you to think about how Jesus used something very similar here. They're both there by a well. Jesus and she have something in common. They're both there for the water. And so Jesus, rather than striking up a conversation about, I am the Lord and you need to do this, or, or starting out there, Jesus starts with her with, a very, with something they have in common, with something that's very common to both of them, and that is the water. He starts out with where she is at and engages her in a conversation looking for a bridge or to create a bridge over which he can then go to talk to her about spiritual matters. And, and as I said with our door knocking and as I, as I read this brother's comments, I thought we need to do that in more than just door knocking. And I, and I said that when we were, were, were talking about going door knocking. We need to find things that we have in common with people. What's important to them? Take them from where they are. And, and so Jesus, in a very similar way, does that here. Talks to her about the water. In verse 9, the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. In a nutshell, and you can turn back there if you want. I'm only going to read three scattered verses from the chapter. But the reason the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans is outlined in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 and following. After the Jews were taken into Babylonian captivity, in verse 24 of 2 Kings 17, it says, the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel and they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. When God's people, the Jews, taken into captivity, the king who had taken them into captivity brought some of his own people into that land. They had fresh houses, vineyards, they had all the, the Jews' possessions, if you will, in that region and they just moved in. Verse 
29 of 2 Kings 17 says, every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made every nation in the cities where they dwelt. As these people were brought in from Babylon to, to take the houses and the vineyards and the possessions that had belonged to the Jews, they continued to worship their own gods. They dragged in all of these false man-made gods. They dragged their religion into this area with them. Verse 34 of 2 Kings 17 says, To this day they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandment which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. In other words, these people that were brought in, brought in their own religion, and they kept practicing it. Well, when the Jews were released from captivity, decades later, and they go to go back to this region, they find, you know, one or two generations, couple of generations down the road, find all of these foreigners with their false gods and their false religion inhabiting their family heritage, if you will. And so Jews very much despised the Samaritans. They wouldn't even speak to them. It, I guess put in, in terms of, of today that we might understand perhaps a little bit better is, is you take the, the Russian-Ukrainian war. If for some reason Russia should take, those, take Ukraine over and, and take all the Ukrainians out of there and, and, and bring Russians from different Russian regions in there to live, and then years later the, the, the Ukrainians were brought back, they would find that there'd been a lot of foreigners with all of their foreign concepts and ideas that had stolen uh, their lands and, and all of that. And so it's that sort of thing. There's a, there's a reason why Jews and Samaritans didn't talk. There was an ethnic hatred here for that. So in verses 10 through 15, even though this woman said, you know, why do you ask me for a drink for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? In verses 10 through 15, Jesus very beautifully, and we need to study this as we want to talk to people and get them to be converted to Christ. Jesus very beautifully transitions and initiates into a conversation wherein he takes that physical entity that they have just talked about, that is the water, that physical entity, the water, which they have both shown a mutual interest in and have been discussing, and he takes that item and he turns it into a spiritual discussion regarding the living water of eternal life. He does that so beautifully and, and that is so effective and it worked here. And as, as Brother Whitaker said, when we uh, listen to those couple of film clips from Reaching the Lost, that, that works with people, it resonates with people. And so Jesus makes this beautiful transition from the physical to the spiritual from going from physical water to the eternal waters, or the waters of eternal life, which he was willing, he said, to give to her. And I want to echo, even her. Even her. Why would I say that? <clears throat> this woman has about the worst reputation you can have. There's a lot of things that she would be called if she were in a small town today living as she lived. She was not the cream of the crop most moral person that had ever walked the face of the earth. She had a lot of baggage, a lot of history. 
And the reason I say that is because of what we learn in, in verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you said, well, I have no husband. You've had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. But he told her that if she had been asked, that he would give even her the water of eternal life. And the question that I want for us to think about is, what do we do, and I had quite a long discussion this morning with somebody about this, what do we do when somebody comes to the door of the church and comes in and sits in our pews who is of a terrible reputation, who's lived a very difficult or addicted or immoral life, we need to think about that person from one standpoint and one standpoint only, and that's that Jesus died for their eternal soul. Right? Sin has killed and crushed a lot of people. Sin has hurt a lot of people. Everybody's got baggage and everybody's carrying their crosses and, and some people life's been too hard for and people have, have turned to a lot of different things to try to find some peace in this life and a lot of them have destroyed those people even further. Now, I'm not okay in sin, okay? Drugs, alcohol, wrong, wrong, wrong. Sin is sin, all of that. Homosexuality is a sin, all of that. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, is when people come in who struggle and suffer from those things, we as the church need to view those people through one lens, and that is the lens that they are lost and that they need Jesus Christ. They need the living water, and that's it. That's it. Now, whether or not they accept that is up to them, but we need to love them. That's what Jesus did here. Do you know how many times Jesus got in trouble for eating with sinners and tax gatherers and that sort of thing? Jesus was constantly in trouble by a religious elite that said, you, if you are as, as uh, for lack of a better term, if you're as high and holy as you claim to be, what are you doing letting that woman touch you? What are you doing, what is your master doing eating with sinners and tax collectors? And, and Jesus got in trouble for that so much from the religious elite. Brethren, we can never be the religious elite. We need to be a people who's concerned for other people's souls, people who've messed their lives up, people who have succumbed to the devil's wiles. Listen, those are the people that need Jesus the most to get out of the hole that they're in. That's who this woman was. And Jesus reaches out to her and does everything that he can do to try to get to her, to get to her, to understand what she needs to do to, to live a better life. Brother Ken Heaton wrote, Jesus is aware of her life and the problems that she lives with. And, and this is something, this is key. There's another thing that we desperately need to learn here, I believe, that maybe doesn't always come out when we study John chapter four. This woman has been married five times. She's living in sin now, pretty much according to the text, that conclusion is logical and can be drawn. And one of the reasons I wanna call this along with Brother Heaton, the well of truth is this. Jesus didn't avoid that issue. Notice that. Jesus did not avoid that issue. 
He did not avoid it. He did not sugarcoat it. He did not ignore it and just hope that it would never be brought up. And I think sometimes we consider it unloving to bring up somebody's sin or somebody's what they're struggling with. Brethren, in order to help with the sin, in order to help with the problem, in order to help the addiction, in order to help the whatever it is, fill in the blank that they're dealing with, we're going to have to mention it. We're going to have to talk about it. We need to love them enough to be able to do that. Not, 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 we can condemn the sin, but not the, that's what happens, as we know, in John 8. But we need to be able to talk to them in love about the sin, because the sin has to be corrected. The sin has to be fixed. And Jesus doesn't, again, this is key. How many times do we just ignore it and think, well, I know that person's got this problem, or they're addicted to this, or they're living in a, you know, whatever, and, and, and it's ignored, like, maybe if we just don't bring it up, it'll go away. It's not going to go away. Her problems weren't going to go away. Jesus didn't look at them like you could avoid them or run from them. Jesus, very kindly but strongly, just states fact. You, you said, I, well, you have no husband. You, you've had five, and the woman, uh, I'm sorry, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In, in that, you spoke truly, and if you look at it, I suppose one way, if you look at that last line, he says, in that you spoke truly. I mean, Jesus wasn't being sarcastic, but it could have been taken that way. In that you've at least spoken truly, you know. And, and, and he didn't. I, I'm sure of it because Jesus never sinned. But again, he was willing to address the issue. He didn't ignore it and just hope that it would never be brought up. He wasn't mean about it, but he was open and honest about it. I think all too often we let Satan convince us not to follow faithfully in Jesus' footsteps here out of concern that we will chase away those people who are caught in the grip of sin. We're afraid that, that we might chase them away and so we never confront it, we never deal with it, we never do anything with it. But Jesus knew that it had to be dealt with. So how did she handle it? This is her moment of truth. This is her moment of truth at the well of truth. She's got this man that's just told her, I know you, I know who you are, I know what you've done, I know what you're doing now. I know your issues, I know your problems that you struggle with. I know your sin. Her moment of truth at the well of truth, what will she do? Will she run? We're always afraid people will run. Will she hide? Will she deny it? Or will she face the truth about her life and her past? Because she wants a better and more rewarding future. That's the key. We know the answer. She recognizes that there is something very special and spiritual about this man. And she asks him a religious question, one that she must also come to the truth of if she wants to worship correctly. In verses 19 and 20, even though she changes the subject, she, she's realized there's something different, special about him. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And that is the perfect opportunity for Jesus. That is the perfect opportunity for Christ to 
go right to the heart of the matter, and so he does. Jesus said to her, verse 21, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. He told her, in effect, you're wrong on both counts. He told her lovingly. He, he, he wasn't unkind about it, but he was honest. He said, neither. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Remember the history? Samaritans that I told you about and Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And, and this is key for us to understand as we're talking with people about different aspects of worship. This is, this is so key. Not only is God willing to extend the living water even to her, not, even is, not only is he willing to, to try to help her to find peace, not only is he willing to offer her eternal water, but he also tells her that, look, Worship that matters is not about where. It's not about if it's on that mountain or that mountain or in that building at Jerusalem. That's not what matters most. It's not the outward things. Let me, let me say this. Worship, quote, has nothing whatsoever to do with the outward physical environment but everything to do with the right inward spiritual attitude. Has nothing to do with the outward physical environment. Listen, could we worship God just as acceptably as far as God is concerned if we didn't have pews in this room? Could we worship God just as acceptably if we had windows and walls? Because it ain't about that. It's about a heart that says, God, this is, this is about relationship. This is about what's on the inside. This is not about all that external stuff. This is, this is one of the reasons why churches of Christ do not use instrumental music. And, I, and I've got to bring this up. It's one of the reasons that we don't. When you put all of the, you line up all of the pieces and you put them all together, we know that there are eight verses in the New Testament on music and every one of them God says sing. We know that. We've, we've had that discussion time and again preached on it, taught on it, we know that, okay? But one of the reasons in addition that we don't have them is because we don't need them. And it's not that we don't need them because we're all perfect pitch all the time. The reason that we don't need them is because just as Jesus is trying to explain to this woman here, worship is not about the outward physical environmental things that you surround yourself with whether it's this mountain or this temple or this building it's not about but it has everything to do with the right inward spiritual attitude god is spirit and those that worship him must worship in spirit and truth and the proper spirit to worship god is a spirit that says you are god I humble myself before you. You are king. You are creator. You are the head of the church. You are the savior. It's not about me. It's not about what I would have if it was my church. It's not about my talents or abilities. It's all about you, God. That is the proper spiritual attitude. It's a spirit of adoration. It's a spirit of reverence. It is a spirit that raises God up and says to God, God, whatever you want, it's all about you. That's worshiping God in spirit and truth. And if we have that type of attitude, then we're going to worship according to the truth, and the truth says sing. 
This is an easy decision. <laughs> but this is what he's trying to tell her. You know, some people think that by, in some churches of Christ, you know, it's like, well, if we, we add instruments and we turn the lights down and we light candles, somehow, let me, somehow that's going to make what Christ did for you on the cross more special? You're going to feel more spiritual? No, no, it's not about the outward. It's about your adoration for God that humbles you before him as your creator. Spirit and truth worship, that's how it's got to be. Some of us play instruments. Okay. You, you know, it, it wouldn't matter if you've got a church where you've got some, some performer that's got, you know, 20 million sellers and gold records on his wall at home and is one of the best guitarists or whatever in the world. Don't do it in the church. Doesn't matter how good you are. It's not about you. It's about God. That's spirit and truth worship. Because as Paul says in Philippians 3.3, we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, worship in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. It's not about what I can do. It's not about what you can do. Church isn't about you. Church isn't about me. Church isn't about your talents. Church isn't about my talents. Church is about God Almighty and humbling ourselves in reverent adoration before Him because He is the King of kings and Lord of lords who sent His Son to die for us. That's true worship. And it doesn't matter where you do that. It is the inner attitude and, and that's what He's getting across. Truth does not come from the will of man or human design. Such self-imposed religion or will worship, that is worship that is according to the doctrines and desires of men that clearly contradict the commandments of God is thoroughly condemned in several places in the scriptures. One of them, Colossians chapter two, verses 20 through 23, it's condemned. It's called will worship. It comes from a, a Greek word, esoleth, I can't even say it, it's about that long. <laughs> or something to that effect. And, and what it is, is, is will worship. It's worship that is not bidden by God. It's not simply taking what God said and going against it, but it is adding to that which God said he wanted. And, and we'll get there in our study on Colossians. But that worship is unacceptable to God. We read that in Matthew 15, 3 through 14, and Mark 7, 1 through 13. The essence of truth is what comes from the mind of God. Worship has always been about truth, and the lesson the Samaritan woman learned is that worship is about, watch this, worship is about relationship with the Father. Understand that. True worship that God accepts is worship that is about our relationship with God, not the place we're doing it, not the outer stuff. He goes on to say location is not the character of worship, but obedience to his will is the character of worship. True worshipers must honor the Father by following his commands and instilling his spirits in their hearts. It is impossible to worship God in a pleasing manner with truth and spirit lacking. 
God is seeking those who will obey him and give him their hearts, souls, and minds to serve him. The trinkets of men do not impress the Lord. He is not impressed by exalted cathedrals, pomp and circumstance, or ornaments of the outward display. God is a spirit, and the only way to worship spirit is in spirit and in truth. At this point, the woman comes to understand and accept the truth about who Jesus is, verses 25 through 27. So what does she do with what she's learned at the well of truth? The same thing that anybody who's ever been set free from sin ought to immediately go and do. She comes to the full realization of the truth about who this man is. She drops everything to go tell others. She leaves her water pot. This is always, from when I was first a Christian, this has always amazed me. The woman comes out here in the heat of the day to get water, probably for the reasons we've discussed. Her whole purpose in being here is to get water. I don't know how low they were at home, but, but that's her whole purpose that afternoon. And when she learns who Jesus is, when she comes to an understanding of the truth, she leaves her, she forgets everything else that she was involved in and drops it in order to go tell others what she's found. That is amazing, but that's the way it should work. Nothing else matters. The, the water in that well all of a sudden doesn't matter. Her mission and purpose for coming out there at noontime, all of a sudden it doesn't matter. That pot she's come out there with under the burden of, it doesn't matter. There's one thing that matters. I know the truth about this man. He's the one. Could he be the one? She drops it all to go tell others the truth that she has come to know. She does that in verses 28 through 30, where it says, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things they ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the city and came to him. <laughs> I've often said, here's a woman who's been married five times. She's living with a man now, small towns in those days. Chances are everybody knew it, as we've discussed. Lady, she comes knocking on your door, or she comes running into your house and says to your husband, hey, you want to go out in the woods and see this guy with me? <laughs> think about this. Really, think about this. I found it, not in the woods, but I'm paraphrasing, but there's this, there's this man that I found at the well, and she tells the man, come, uh, could he be the one? Well, if you're the wife of one of these other men, you're probably thinking, um, excuse me, uh, he ain't running off out there with you. You've got a reputation. But there was something about her. There was something more about her, apparently, because they all went. <laughs> they, they, they went. And you know what happened when they got there? When they got out to the well of truth, you know what happened? Verses 39 through 42, they became convinced of the truth too. They go out. In verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. They said to the woman, Now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. They came to know the truth as well. And the reason they came to know the truth is because they took the time to listen to the truth, just as she had 
In conclusion, don't, don't it's, it's a fairly long conclusion, but in conclusion, the only kind of worship that God says he will accept is worship that, number one, truly humbles one's heart and self before him. Psalm 51, 16 and 17, you know what David said about the sacrifices of God are a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That's what it takes to worship God acceptably is a spirit that is broken by its sin, a spirit that accepts him as God, that reverences and adores him again, Psalm 51, 16 and 17. Number two, kind of worship that God will accept is not only one that truly humbles one's heart and self before him, but one that honors and serves him alone as God. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10. And finally, the kind of worship that God will accept in addition to those two is worship that therefore gives him the adoration, the obedience, the reverence, and the recognition that he alone is worthy of. It is a worship that rejects all else reverencing and obeying only what he says in his word he wants. No matter the mountain you're on, the city you're in, the people around you, the buildings you're in, or the innovations or circumstances that you might be in the midst of, it is about putting God first and honoring his will, period, from the inside out. And of course, when you do that, you're not going to add innovations such as instruments because God did not say he wanted them. And if you add them, it's because you want them. And worship ain't about you or me. Vance Havner said, Our Lord approved neither I-D-O-L worship or I-D-L-E worship, but only I-D-E-A-L worship, which is worship in spirit and truth. Neither idol worship nor idol worship but ideal worship. Brother Heaton said, like the Samaritan woman, many believe that worship comes from a place or a time to be endured. But true worship has always been according to the pattern designed by the Lord in the manner ordained by the Lord. I like that. One more time. True worship has always been according to the pattern designed by the Lord in the manner ordained by the Lord. Jesus shows the woman that worship is genuine when it is the heart that is employed to receive the glory of the Father. It is about the one who is worshiped that has made the difference between acceptable worship and vain worship. It's about the one who is worshiped that makes the difference between acceptable and vain worship. When worship becomes about any of you or it becomes about me, it's vain, it's empty, because it doesn't honor God. When it comes about when worship becomes about how good the piano player is in the band, or worship becomes about how great or how horrible a speaker the preacher is, or, or worship becomes about we got the best building in town, or worship becomes about any of those things, don't bother because God don't accept it. God's a spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth 
honoring him and him alone as God, and it's all about him. As the scripture says in Isaiah 66, 1 and 2, final verse of the night, listen to this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. <laughs> where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand is made and all those things exist, says the Lord. The Lord asks in Isaiah 66, 1, hey, <laughs> heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. You got a foot, any of you got a footstool in your house? Maybe your recliner you know, goes up or, or you got a, what we used to call a hassock. I don't know if you use that term anymore, but you got a footstool, something put your feet on. God says, let me tell you something. Earth is my footstool. It's what I put my feet on. <laughs> so where's the house that you're gonna make? Where's the physical structure? Where's the physical worship that you're gonna make that's gonna impress me? He said, you ain't gonna. I made the heavens and the earth and the universe. You ain't going to build a building that's going to impress me to worship in it. It's not about your build. It's not about how good you play the guitar or the piano or the organ. That, that, I created you. That, that stuff doesn't impress me. But then in verse 2 of Isaiah 66, the very next verse, God says, but on this one will I look. On him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. God said all that other stuff don't impress me. But you want to know the one upon whom I will look, the one upon whose worship I will accept, the one who matters to me on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Do we tremble in our worship? Do we tremble at his word? Do we, do we say, what is it that God said he wants because he's God and I'm going to give him whatever he wants? Do we do that? Do we tremble at his word? Listen, sometimes we get to the point where we we talk about how we don't have instruments and we're supposed to sing, but brethren, we're not just supposed to sing. We're supposed to sing with joy in our hearts, aren't we? Does the Bible say that, that we're to sing with grace in our hearts or joy in our hearts? Yes, yeah, uh-huh. Listen, when we don't do that, we're not trembling at his word. We're not offering him acceptable worship if we just sit there and mouth the words like, oh my goodness, when can we get out of here? That's not acceptable worship. We must tremble at his word, give him everything he asked for, question is, do you tremble at his presence and his word enough to humble yourself before him and love and worship him the way he said he wanted? Is that you tonight? Have you come to the well and to the truth of his word, the living water? Have you come to know who Jesus really is? Are you ready? Because if you realize who he really is, <laughs> if you realize who he really is and how he can give you eternal life, then this next question shouldn't really be a question. Are you ready to repent and leave your earthly pursuits behind like she did her water pot and take up your cross and follow him daily and tell others about him? Because listen, if you come to understand who he is and what he has to give you, that second question ain't a question. Because that's what you're gonna do. You can do anything you can because this is God and he's willing to save your eternal soul. Are you ready tonight? Do you know him that well? that you're willing to commit your life to him and let him give you eternal life by your repentance and baptism into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And when you do that, are you ready to worship in spirit and truth, leaving all of that man-made stuff, all of that outer physical stuff behind that doesn't matter to God anyway, and just simply worship him in humility, giving him whatever it is he says he wants in his word? Are you ready?
come to the truth that she came to. To come to the living water springing up to eternal life. As Jesus talked about the well of truth in John 4. If you are, then please come to the front as we stand and sing.